0: wanted to tell you about a couple of books that you might enjoy. One of them is a brand new book by Elise Fitzpatrick. It's called Give Them Grace, Dazzling Your Kids with the Love of Jesus. It's a, just a great book on parenting. We have a whole bunch of copies of it in the lobby. So I highly recommend that to those of you who are parents or grandparents. And then an older classic by Will Metzger called Tell the Truth, The Whole Gospel to the Whole Person by whole people. And so if God is laying it on your heart to be more articulate about the gospel with people who don't know the gospel, this is just a wonderful intro uh, to how to talk about the gospel with people who don't know. So a couple of couple of books that you can buy in our bookstore. And we are continuing our series through John and our mini series through uh, The Woman at the Well. And we're in verses 23 and 24 today where Jesus says to her uh, that if you want to worship God, you need to worship in spirit and in truth. So we're going to look at that phrase in spirit and in truth. And I've always wondered about that. I've often prayed that God you know before the worship service our our worship team will gather in my office and and I'll often pray that God would help us to worship him in spirit and in truth but the the meaning of that phrase has always felt a little elusive to me I've never studied it and I've never been totally sure what it means and so it was honestly just a really fun week reading what other scholars and pastors have said about this passage and uh, praying about it and figuring out how to talk about this with you this morning Worship is probably the most important thing that we do. It's why God created us. He created us to glorify and enjoy Him, which is just uh, ways of describing worship. He created us to worship Him. And so when God tells us how He wants to be worshipped, it's important for us to understand what He means. Uh, So I hope that God will reveal Himself to us as we open His Word this morning and ask Him to help us understand. So let's start by remembering the context. They're in the middle of a conversation. Jesus and this precious lady uh, are in the middle of a, of a conversation. We probably have a summarization of this whole conversation because when she uh, later talks about their conversation, then she is, it seems to be referring to even more that he told her about herself. And so uh, we have probably a summary, but as they're going back and forth, uh, he tells her, hey, you know, why don't you go get your husband? And she says, well, I, I you know, I don't have a husband. And, and he says, yeah, that, that's true. You've actually had five husbands, and now you're shacking up with a guy who's not your husband. Uh, so in the vernacular there, this is kind of the, the interaction, and he probably says some other things to her, and she's shocked because this guy knows things about her that only a prophet would know see prophecy when you ask people what is a prophet uh, a lot of times the pe- people will give the answer that a prophet is somebody who can tell you the future t- tell you the future almost like a fortune teller and that is part of what a biblical prophet does sometimes a biblical prophet like isaiah will say you know cyrus is the name of the king a couple hundred years from now who's going to let the people come back from the exile and so on sometimes they do tell the future and do things like this but but the Primary definition of a prophet is somebody who speaks for God somebody who says the words of God, and so it's common for the prophets to say something like, thus saith the Lord, and you just know, you can take this to the bank, that when Isaiah or Ezekiel or Habakkuk or any of these prophets says, thus saith the Lord, then it's exactly what God intends to say. Moses was also a prophet, and he wrote down the Old Testament history and uh, most of the first five books, the Pentateuch of the Bible. David was also a prophet. He was a king, but he was also a prophet, and he gave gave us most of the book of Psalms writing scripture. And the apostles also carried on this tradition. The apostles, definition of, a, of, an, of an apostle is more than just speaking for God because the apostle was a leader of the early church and so on. But the apostle also functioned like an Old Testament prophet where these guys were able to write down scripture. But as soon as those apostles died, then nobody can say, thus saith the Lord, anymore. That ended Uh, The Bible, there's nothing that we can add to the Bible. So there might be people who have a gift of prophecy... Uh, But it isn't that one of those kind of take this to the bank. This is absolutely we can add it to scripture because we're positive that this is the word of the Lord. Instead, it's more of a sense. And so you say, you know, I I have a sense that God is leading us to pick up our family and move to another country. Or I have a sense that God wants us to adopt a child or something like this. You have a, a feeling within you and you run that through elders and mature people and other Christians because you have this very humble approach because you know you're not an apostle and you're not an old testament prophet and it's just not possible for us anymore to say thus saith the lord but this lady at the woman at the well is still operating during a time when those gifts were in operation and she's talking to jesus jesus knows things that only god would know okay because he's a stranger he's come from out of town never seen him before and she and he's telling her things about herself and 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 putting his finger right on some of the most sensitive subjects in her life. And she realizes, I'm talking to a prophet. I'm talking to somebody who, who knows things that only God knows. And so this man is a mouthpiece of the Lord. And so in John chapter 4, verse 19, she, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Okay, Only a prophet could say something like what Jesus said to her just a minute ago. Yeah, you've, you've actually had five husbands. Now you're shacking up with somebody. And so she knows she's talking to a prophet, and so she asks him a question. And the question that she asks, John 4, verse 20, she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. She's standing on Mount Gerizim, which is outside of Jerusalem. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So this is the debate between the Samaritans and the Jews, the they had kind of grown apart from each other, even theologically. They had different Bibles, uh, kind of a very similar heritage, but they branched off from each other during the period of the exile and uh, grown apart from each other in Scripture and in belief. And the Samaritans had their temple there on Mount Gerizim. So she's raising this this issue. Now, this, th- this question that she's asking... Uh, comes right after he has said, okay, you've had five husbands, now you're shacking up with somebody. And some people interpret this as her uh, kind of evading the issue, right? She's, um, you know, he wants to talk about her sin, and so she raises a theological question. And that might be true, and so I'll throw that out there, uh, and you may have heard that. But I think that might be psychologizing the text a little bit and reading, it into, reading into it a little bit. I, I think actually what's happening here is that uh, her question is basically, how do I worship God? You know, you say that it's in Jerusalem and my people say that it's here. And she's basically asking, how, how do I worship God? Which I think is a pretty good question to ask a prophet. If all of a sudden you realize that you're standing in front of somebody and it's one of those, like if you could ask God anything, what would you ask him? you know, and, and some of us might ask a question about a piece of scripture that's unclear to us. I mean, if you could just get an absolute, this is, this is God talking, you know, uh, should I marry so-and-so, or should I take this job, or, you know, ask some theological question or doctrinal question, what, you know, if you could ask God any question, what would you ask? And I think that's what she realizes is the deal here. She has kind of, won the, uh, the, the Old Testament lottery here in the sense that she's standing in front of somebody and she can basically ask God any question that she wants. Now, she doesn't realize she's actually standing in front of God. She thinks she's speaking uh, to somebody who is speaking for God. Uh, but I think that's what's happening here is that she's asking kind of the one question that has bugged her her entire life. It's the one question that gets to the heart of the greatest political and religious debate of her day in her world. Our fathers worshipped here on Gerizim and you say that we're supposed to worship over there and which is it? Because it's an important question because it has to do with how do, I, how do I interact with God? How do I have a relationship with God? I think that's the question that she's asking and I think that's a very good question to ask a, prof, a prophet. So Jesus answered her, answers her question in verse 21. And before we get to verse 21, keep in mind that the big debate Between Samaritans and Jews, uh, is who are the real people of God? Because they both have the same basic heritage. Uh, It's just that the Samaritans had interbred with some of the Canaanites during the period of the exile, and so the Jews considered them to be half breeds, and in order for the Samaritans to continue as they were they had to change some of the bible so again we had different scriptures different places of worship and all of this and the and the question i think she's asking is she's kind of in the back of her mind realizing now now which is it you know i've i've grown up and i've always heard that it's that it's this and such but you know i just want to make sure if i'm actually talking to a prophet which which is it who's right who's the real people of god whose bible is the right bible whose temple is the right temple this is a very important question so Jesus uh, takes sides, which is interesting. He doesn't say, oh, you know, you're right and I'm right and we all love Abraham and let's just hold hands. And no, he takes sides. So let's listen to what he says in verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, which sounds impolite to us, but he you could also translate it lady. He's not, he's not saying, woman, get me a, you know, get me a beer or something. He's He's, he's speaking respectfully to her, even though it doesn't come across in the translation. Jesus said to her, lady, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So he's taking sides. But the hour is coming, and it's now here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So let's look at his answer a little bit before we focus in on this phrase, spirit and truth. In verse 21, he says, Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And so she's asking the question, where is the right place to do this? Gerizim or... Uh, Mount Zion and he basically says neither (laughs) none of the above because now that I'm here it doesn't really matter and uh, it's not an issue of temples anymore the Holy Spirit is going to make it possible uh, for people to worship God anywhere and so it's not it doesn't matter where you're worshiping you could be worshiping on totally the other side of the world and you can worship just as well as here or any other place so uh, so the whole question is is almost Obsolete at this point. So that's the first part of his answer. And then verse 22, he says, you worship what you do not know. Salvation is from the Jews. So there he's taking sides in this debate between Samaritans and Jews and who is going to get the Messiah, whose scriptures are correct. And he says, Jews. (laughs) Okay, now the Jews had goofed their religious system and they had all these problems, but their scriptures were correct. Their location was correct. And uh, the Samaritans had, had goofed. And so he, make, he makes this clear. And I think that's interesting that he tells her that she's wrong. And everybody that she knows and loves is wrong. And, uh, I mean, he's polite, but he's direct and he's clear. And I think that's important. Um, there is a right way and a wrong way to worship God. And we don't need to be jerks about it. Uh, but it's, it's helpful to see Christ uh, just... Very clearly and politely saying well you're, you're wrong about that and here is the correct way to do it And we live in a time where we don't like to uh, put things into those kinds of categories uh, That I'm right and you're wrong that sounds you know That sounds like a huge amount of pride to tell somebody that they're wrong And so we kind of prance around these kinds of issues when we're having religious conversations And I do think it's extremely important to be gracious to be courteous uh, to not look down on people because we are sinners saved by grace and all of that sort of thing uh, but at the end of the day there is a correct and an incorrect way to worship God and and uh, even Christ himself is 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 bold enough to say so and I think we can follow his example in our relativistic culture that's a side point verse 23 he says the hour is coming the hour is coming and that's a phrase that we're going to see all through the Gospel of John, whenever Jesus is referring to his hour, he's talking about his passion. He's talking about that period of time and everything that is leading up to the crucifixion, his death. Uh, The hour is really the key hour, the key moment in the biblical story, the key event of all uh, history uh, when temples and priests become obsolete And when sinners like you and me and this woman at the well can worship God. And that really is the main message that hopefully comes from this pulpit every single week. Is that God saves sinners. Uh, God saves sinners. And hopefully we hear that and we remember that uh, over and over and over again. It is the main message of the Bible and it all hinges on this hour of Christ where he dies on the cross as a substitute death uh, for all those of us who deserve to die for our many outrageous rebellions against God. And, uh, and God creates this process by which we can be cleaned from our sins and reconciled to God. That is the main message of the Bible. It is the most exciting and interesting and substantive thing that I will say this morning. We're going to sing songs celebrating that. It is just what it's all about. And uh, and so when Jesus Christ is referring to his hour, uh, he's talking about his crucifixion. And what he's saying here is that this, this reality, that it doesn't matter where you're worshiping, Gerizim or Mount Zion or whatever, all of that hinges. Your ability to worship God anywhere hinges on the crucifixion. And so these pieces come together for us at the end of the gospel, but we, we know the end of the story. He dies at the end, you know and uh, and we know why he dies and so on, and that's the point of the entire Bible. And then again in verse 23, further in verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So what I'd like to do here um, for probably the second half of our time is to look at this phrase in spirit and in truth. I've always wondered, what does that mean? You know, God wants to be worshiped in spirit and in truth. What exactly does he mean by that? And so... As I said, it was just a, a lot of fun to research this and try and figure this out. So uh, a few different things. I, I'm not going to give you an exact number because I think all of these things kind of weave together. So for those of you who like outlines, you're just going to have to be bothered by that. But, uh, but I am going to say a few things that with the concepts that will build on themselves. And the first is that we have to be born again by the Spirit. We see this in the whole last chapter, chapter 3. Uh, where Jesus tells Nicodemus to, that he has to be born again by the Spirit. Truly, truly, I say to you, John 3, 5, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then later, a passage we haven't gotten to yet, in uh, 6.63, uh, we're told that it is the Spirit who gives life. So I think part of understanding what Jesus means by requiring his people to worship in Spirit and in truth is to say that uh, we have to worship as people who have been born again by the Spirit. You cannot worship God unless the Spirit of God is living inside you, helping you to understand truths about God, helping you to feel awe and joy and other correct ways to feel in God's presence, helping you to remember uh, the teaching of Christ, and so on. It doesn't have anything to do with your, your heritage. You could be Samaritan, you could be Jewish, you could be Asian, it doesn't matter. It has to do with being drawn to God by the Father, uh, uh, it, draw, drawn to the Father by the Holy Spirit through the mediation of the Son. So John 6.44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so worship depends on someone having the Holy Spirit in them. You cannot worship unless you have the Holy Spirit in you. So you might be a person who comes to church uh, regularly and you enjoy the people of the church and there's some of the production of it all that is interesting to you and maybe you have a kind of whole type of thing in your life that or that, that feels like religion is, is an important thing to be part of or maybe you have children and you think you know, they need good friends because some of their friends at church uh, some of their friends at school kind of concern me and and so on. And, and so you're coming to church, but but when you're coming, you're not worshiping in spirit and in truth. It, it's more of a of an entertainment or, or, or a show. And some of the songs are interesting, and you'll sing along with them. But there's no real awe for God. There's no real joy in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ for you, a rebel who deserved that death. Uh, there's no zeal for being in his presence, no hunger for being in his presence. The reason for that is that the Holy Spirit is not in you. Uh, God has not uh, regenerated you so that your uh, worship is true and in spirit. What this means is that, uh, that you are unreconciled to God. You are still uh, in a state of not being reconciled to God. And what this means is that when you die, uh, you will experience what the Bible calls hell. Uh, and the bible uses a couple of metaphors to talk about hell. Uh, sometimes uh, the bible talks about fire and other times the bible talks about darkness and these things are i think contradictory. right? so we know that they're metaphors because fire is bright and and darkness and how can these things be true? so they're metaphors. and so the metaphor of fire just refers to the fact that it is just a torment. it's an eternal torment. Because what happens when you die unreconciled to God is that you have this constant, unending, uh, permanent experience of being under God's wrath. And there's a great pain in that, that the Bible says is like being in a fire that you can't get out of, the end of... uh, The book of Isaiah says it's a place where the worm does not die. And the worm is just, you know, a perfect example of a little piece of flesh that could just easily go and and be gone in a real fire, right? But the worm does not die in hell because the the kind of torment and experience of being in hell is one that is never-ending. And so you can imagine, we've all burnt ourselves on a candle or a hot stove or something. We know, and some probably have had even worse experiences of burning. You can imagine uh, what it would be like to be in in kind of a pit of burning fire uh, forever, and that is what it's like to be unreconciled to God and experiencing His wrath uh, forever. And the Bible also uses this concept of darkness, and I think you know darkness is is kind of scary. Darkness is is empty and it's uh, lonely and. It's uh, terrible. It can be terrible when it's it's totally unending and there's just no hope in this permanent darkness of hell. Uh, Now, if you have not been regenerated by God, if you've not confessed your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ, uh, then the Bible promises that that hell will be your permanent experience after you die. And... uh, Let me just also say that that death is one of those things that we don't like to think about because we live in a culture that believes that science and doctors can kind of fix any problem, and yet we have several deaths in this congregation every year, right? I mean, we've all together attended many memorial services, and we know what death is like. We know about the reality of death, and any of us, not just the older ones among us, but any of us could die even today, maybe even during this sermon Uh, There could be, uh, you could have a heart attack or you could get hit by a car. There could be all kinds of ways that you could die even today. And if you die without confessing your sins to God and putting yourself under the authority of God so that you say you can do whatever you want with my life, you are my Lord, you're my boss, you're the King of Kings. If we die today, if you die today without having confessed your sins, and without putting your trust fully, your life fully in God's hands, uh, then you will experience this terrible thing that the Bible calls hell. Uh, Now, there's a very simple solution to this, and the Bible calls it the gospel. If you will confess your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ, then the death of Christ on the cross pays the penalty uh, that you deserved, that you would experience in hell. Jesus Christ died. Dying on the cross uh, counts as, as your death. And he raised again as an as illustration that God accepted that and as a demonstration of his eternal uh, life and power. And so not only do you get the benefits of the death of Jesus Christ if you confess your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord, uh, so not only do you get the benefits of his death, but you also get the benefits of his life. So that if you were to die today, then you would not experience hell, but you would go immediately into the presence of God. And he would not be uh, uh, expressing his wrath on you for all eternity. The Bible says the smoke of hell goes up forever and ever. You will not be part of that smoke, but instead you will be in God's presence as a, as a, as a beloved child. You'll be worshiping him and you will be enjoying the new heavens and the new earth. And so that is the basic gospel message. And uh, and so what I'm saying is that if you are worshiping God in spirit and in truth, then you are one who has been born again by the spirit. You have the Holy Spirit within you so that when you come to worship God, whether it be in a formal situation like this or just a private situation, Scenario: You're driving in the car, or you're having dinner with your family, or whatever. You're taking advantage of these opportunities to worship God because the Spirit of God uh, must worship the Father. The Spirit of God must remind you of the words of Scripture, must help you understand Scripture when you go to Scripture, must give you joy in your salvation and zeal for. Uh, for worshiping God and so on. And so the Holy Spirit is the one who makes all of this possible. He provides constant access to God. He reminds us about biblical truth. He animates what was spiritually dead. We are dead. We are in rebellion against God unless we've repented for our sins and put our trust in Christ. And yet, if we have repented for our sins and put our trust in Christ, then we have the Holy Spirit within us animating what was once dead nudging us to worship, filling our worship with religious affections, giving uh, various expressions of worship with ability and hopefully even beauty. So as we're looking at this phrase, to worship God in spirit and in truth, part of worshiping God in spirit is worshiping God as one who has been born again by the spirit of God. And another aspect of this, the one that is most clear in terms of this passage is that worshiping God in spirit means that the location of our worship doesn't matter. You can worship God in the bottom deck of a boat in the middle of the ocean. You can worship God anywhere at, at any time uh, because the Holy Spirit lives inside you. Uh, God Jesus Christ, before he left, he said, uh, you know, I'm not going to leave you as as orphans. And he sends the Holy Spirit as our helper. And the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside us. And so now we have God's presence with us wherever we go. And so we can worship God in a time like this, or we can worship God all through the rest of the day. No matter where we go, we could cross a state line. Uh, We can be up in the air in a plane. We can go into a cave. You can be by yourself or with others. And you can always worship God because... You have the Holy Spirit living inside you, which makes it possible to commune with God at all times. John Calvin, in commenting on this phrase, said this, God does not choose to be worshipped either in Jerusalem or in Mount Gerizim. He takes a higher principle that the true worship of him consists in the Spirit, for hence it follows that in all places he may be properly worshipped. In all places he may be properly worshipped. So a couple of concepts building here. We can worship God. We can worship God correctly because we've been born again by the Spirit of God. We've been drawn, convicted, filled, helped by the Spirit of God. And also, since we worship God as one who has been filled with His Spirit, it doesn't matter where we worship. The worship is spiritual, not locational. I just made up a word there. Now... Worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Let's set spirit aside for a minute and think about this word truth. What does it mean to worship God in truth? Uh, the most obvious meaning is the truth is the opposite of error. Jesus embodies truth or, or as Les often says in uh, true truth in quoting Francis Schaeffer. Jesus embodies true truth. He calls himself the way, the truth, and the life in chapter 14, verse 6. The spirit is called the spirit of truth several times in the book of John. Second uh, John 1, 4, I, great, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. God is all about truth. He's all about being clear to us about realities, about himself, and how he requires us to worship him. Uh, John seventeen seventeen. your word is truth. God is truth. Everything that God does is true. Everything about God is true. So worshiping God in truth means that we worship God in the way that God wants to be worshiped. It means to worship God correctly, biblically. It means the words and the work of Jesus Christ are the authority over our worship. The words of Christ are the authority of our worship. What did, what did Jesus Christ say? And the Holy Spirit reminds us of the things that Jesus said. And so one example, uh, we're going to recite it together in a few minutes, will be the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Jesus was talking to his disciples. And he says, look, you, you, you want to pray? Here's how to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven. And he teaches them how to pray. So worshiping uh, in spirit and in truth means that we are worshiping according to the words and teachings of Jesus Christ. And because he is the word made flesh, Pretty much the entire Bible, uh, absolutely the entire Bible, is, uh, is a demonstration of, uh, is an expression of the person of Jesus Christ telling us the truth about how to worship. And we worship according to the work of Jesus Christ. What was the point of Jesus Christ coming? What was the point of his ministry? Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus embodies truth. He is the truth. His words and his work are the authority over our worship. The Apostle Paul was a great teacher of how to worship God, and he's reminding the Corinthians in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians of his ministry with them. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, I told you the truth, and I told you the most essential truth that you could ever know. And he goes on, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So this woman at the well had questions. She had confusion about how do I worship God? All right, you're a prophet. You know all these things about me. You know my worst sins. You know everything about me, and yet you seem to be treating me politely and respectfully and so on. So I got a question for you. How do I worship God? Because I have this question kind of in the back of my mind, and everybody's telling me that we're supposed to be here on Gerizim, and I'm not totally sure. So how do I worship God? How do I have a relationship with God? And Jesus is clearing up the confusion. And if we put this together, we start to get a picture of what Jesus means by worshiping in spirit and in truth. Ultimately... It's about worshiping God in the right way as one who has been born again and filled by the spirit capable of worshiping God anywhere and worshiping him biblically informed and governed by the true word. Just one more thing to say though. Uh, And I think this is getting really to the heart of what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. Uh, When we worship God in spirit, What we mean is that it is spiritual worship. It is not just something we do with our bodies. It is not a religious ritual, but it is something that comes from the depths of who we are. Um, It involves our souls. It is not just an action of doing certain things and making our bodies do certain things and so on. And it is not about getting our body to go to a place and putting on certain things and going to a place. It is is an attitude. It is a lifestyle. It's a demeanor that flows out of a soul that is in love with God. True worship is spiritual, and true worship connects us to an unseen world of of angels and prayer and so on. And, And it is true. It's sincere. It's not an irrelevant ritual. And we all know what it's like to sing along with the songs of a, of a worship song, and uh, we're thinking about something totally different, right? And we, know, we all know what that's like, that kind of embarrassing awareness before God that we've been singing, you know, all of you is more than enough and so on, and we've never actually thought about, what did I just say? I'm actually saying that I don't need anything other than God because God's all that I need. That's not where I've been emotionally all week long. And we see these, we see these juxtapositions between the realities of what we're singing and the, the sad realities of, of our lives. And the Holy Spirit makes it possible for the words that come out of our mouths to be true words, sincere worship before God. True worship is alive. It's fresh. False worth worship is uh, unaffected. It's musty. It's cold. It's irrational even. But true worship is alive and fresh and warm and clear. And I think Mary is a good example. Jesus' mother, I think, is a good example of worshiping God in spirit and in truth with sincerity, with this genuine sort of love and worship for God. She wrote the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, one of the most beautiful poems of the Bible. She's following along in Hannah's footsteps and listen just to the first part of what she says. She says, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. This little girl, she's in her teens and she's writing better poetry than any of us could. Mary captures the, ends at the essence of what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. You can hear this awe for God in her words. He who is mighty has done great things. That's worshiping God in spirit and in truth. You can hear her humility before God's holiness. She's worshiping God, God as he is. She says he has looked on the humble estate of his servant you can hear this worship coming from her real deep self, not some formulaic empty religion, but she says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices. That's true worship. Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near with a true heart. Here's Calvin again. He says, we must devote our own spirits to and employ them in the service of God. We must worship him with fixedness of thought and a flame of affection and all that is within us. That's true worship. It's worship that comes from a deep place. It's a determination to worship God in spirit and in truth so that the words that come off my lips are true and I have this full-throated praise glorifying God. True worship is sincere. It is honest. Let me conclude with these thoughts. It's it's important that we know what Jesus means when he says, I want you to worship me in spirit and truth. When God says, I want you to worship me in spirit and truth, we need to know what he means when he says that because our God is a consuming fire and we don't just waltz into his presence, uh, but there is a certain respect there. There's a tenderness. I had a friend once who, who said, you know, you can climb up in God's lap and pull on his ears and so on because he's your your father, and I think that's a wonderful picture. But there's a reverence still there. Okay, God is not your buddy. He's the king of kings. And it's important that we worship him correctly because there are are awful consequences for getting worship wrong. Uh, And we are here this morning because we want to worship God. Uh, And we are wasting our time together uh, if we are not worshiping God correctly, John Owen said, uh, You that are perhaps seeking earnestly after a righteousness and are religious persons, consider a little with yourselves. Hath Christ his due place in your hearts? Is he your all? Does he dwell in your thoughts? Do you know him in his excellency and desirableness? Do you indeed account all things loss and dung for his exceeding excellency, or rather, Do you prefer almost anything in the world before it? And that is the question, I think, that the scriptures are asking us here this morning. Do we worship God in spirit and in truth? Will we begin now, if we have never started before, to bend our knee in repentance and faith, worshiping God in spirit and in truth? The woman at the well is asking Jesus the same question that all of us need to know. How do I worship God? And the answer here is, is that we worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's close in prayer. Lord God in heaven, if we could see you now, we would all be flat on our faces. We would be singing praises. We would be weeping. You are a great and awesome God. And no one in this room has ever given you your due Because we're surrounded with this world and we are plagued with a sin nature. Lord God, I pray that you would condescend to us this morning. That you would grab hold of us with your Holy Spirit and draw us to you. Lord God, I pray for all those who have never repented of their sins. They might be sorry for this or that, but they have never confessed their sins and hated them and cried over them and walked away from them. And they have never put their trust in you before. They don't know what it is to live under your authority. They like you, but they don't love you. And I pray for all those who are unreconciled to you this morning that by your powerful Holy Spirit, you would bring conviction into their hearts. And I pray that you would bring a sense of being scared of hell And I pray that you would bring an awareness of the realities of the gospel so that this clear path would seem true to them and that they would grab hold of this uh, life preserver that you are throwing to them now and that they would confess their sins and that they would say, God, in heaven, I have sinned against you my entire life. I am a rebel deserving of hell. And Lord God, I ask that you would forgive me for my sins. I pray that you would glean me, and I know I don't deserve it. And I pray that all the penalty for my sin would be put on your son, Jesus Christ. How, How can I even ask that? And I'm so sorry that his suffering was increased because of my rebellion. But I thank you for providing this forgiveness for me. And I put my entire life in your hands. You are my king. You are my Lord. And I know that I will stumble many times, but I commit myself to being your slave from this minute for the rest of my life. Lord God, I pray that you would bless all who have prayed that prayer, that they would be true words that just came from their souls. And for the rest of us who need to be re-evangelized every day in remembering these great truths, we thank you with joy in our hearts that you have made it possible for us to worship you in spirit and in truth. And God, we pray that as we plunk out these songs here for the next few minutes, that it would bring glory and honor to you. You are a great and awesome, gracious, loving, incredibly majestic God. We love you and we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.